We'll just let these last few take their seats. And welcome to the library at the Royal College of Surgeons of England. My name is Simon Chaplin. I'm the director of the Hunterian Museum, which is just next door. And I hope either you've been in the Hunterian Museum or after my talk, if you're excited by what you've seen, you'll have a chance to have a look around. What I'm going to do today is just give you uh, an insight into, I guess, what I'd call some of my favourite things from the museum. Now, I've been working at the Hunterian Museum now for about 10 years, and over that time, I've got to know the various bits and bobs that we have, and in particular to discover some of the stories behind them. And it's the stories behind some of the bodies that we have, or bits of bodies that we have in the Hunterian Museum, that I'm going to talk about today. Uh, I do have some slides, so I hope the slides will be clear enough. I did test them, they seem to be fine. Um, if anyone can't hear me as I'm talking, if I drift away from the microphone, just wave at me and I shall drift back. So, let's begin. Now, of all of the bodies we have in the Hunterian Museum, there is one, I think, which is perhaps more notorious than any other. This is Jonathan Wilde, King of the London Underworld, hanged in 1725, hanged mainly for being a bad employer. Now, that may sound a bit odd. Jonathan Wilde was notorious as a thief-taker. His job was to turn in thieves and, in particular, to reunite people with their lost property. A very noble profession, you might think, in a time when there was no proper police force in London. However, of course, it turns out that Jonathan Wilde was busy commissioning burglaries and employing burglars to relieve people of their property, then to reunite them. So he was making a nice profit on this trade. Unfortunately, Jonathan Wilde was not content with the money to be made from this business. And so for a bit of added profit, he started turning in the burglars as well. Now, this, I think, is a catastrophic piece of man management. As a way of getting your workforce to perform, turning them into the law and seeing them strung up at Tyburn is not a very good way to develop someone's career. And I think his staff soon got wise to this. And in 1725, they turned the tables on Jonathan Wilde and turned him in. Very unpopular, he was pelted with fruit as he was taken to the gallows at Tyburn to be hanged. This is an invitation issued by somebody, I doubt one of his friends, to Jonathan Wilde's funeral. It said that after his hanging, his body would be decently interred. Well, it was, but only very briefly. Jonathan Wilde's skeleton was buried the night he was hung, but the next morning, it turned out the grave was empty. Somebody had come along in the middle of the night and exhumed Jonathan Wilde's body. Nobody knew quite what had happened to it. Four days later, someone made a rather grisly discovery, a large pile of human flesh with no skeleton in it. Rather hairy. Jonathan Wilde was a famously hairy man. These were the deboned remains of Jonathan Wilde. But what had happened to his skeleton? No trace of it. No one saw it. No one heard of it. Until, at the end of the 18th century, some... 70 years after Jonathan Wilde had been hanged, a small notice appeared in the newspaper, in the Times, advertising the sale of somebody's property, a Dr. Rambin. And amongst his property was the skeleton, a skeleton of Jonathan Wilde. Now, obviously, there can only be one skeleton of Jonathan Wilde. I don't know where it went after it was sold by Dr. Rambin, but here it is today in the Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of Surgeons, a relic of a time 
when bodies of criminals executed at Tyburn were taken for dissection. This is almost certainly the fate of Jonathan Wilde. His body was exhumed by an anatomy teacher and taken to be dissected. London in the 18th century was the heyday of private anatomy teaching. Getting hold of bodies was rather tricky. And Jonathan Wilde, it seems, was one such body that the private anatomists laid claim to. Now, the Company of Surgeons, our predecessor as an institution, used to give formal lectures on the bodies of criminals executed at Tyburn. Here we have the body of a murderer laid out in the theatre at Surgeons Hall, and they quite often collected the skeletons. This is the skeleton of Elizabeth Brownrigg, hanged in 1786 for torturing her servant girl and eventually murdering her. A very notorious case. She was hanged amid great excitement, great notices in the press. Lots of people went along to see the hanging. Even more went along to see her dissected afterwards. And her skeleton was hung up in one of these niches around the wall in Surgeon's Hall. Now, sadly, I don't know what happened to all of the skeletons in Surgeon's Hall. For some reason, we don't have them in the college today. When the company of surgeons moved from its old theatre in the Old Bailey here to this site in Lincoln's Inn Fields at the end of the 18th century, all of the skeletons seem to have disappeared. So we don't have Elizabeth Brownrigg's skeleton anymore. Now, Alongside this formal teaching of anatomy, there was this thriving private business. And, of course, the most famous private teacher of anatomy was this chap, John Hunter, the founder of our Hunterian Museum. He taught anatomy and surgery in London from 1748, when he began his career as an assistant to his brother William, until his death in 1793. This is the kind of thing he was doing, teaching dissection not in a great lecture theatre, but in a small room with students actually getting the chance to dissect bodies. A very kind of hands-on way of teaching. In fact, still the way in which most medical schools teach anatomy today, a very effective way of teaching anatomy. Very popular as well. Lots of students wanted to attend these courses. John Hunter was one of 60 individuals teaching anatomy, surgery, or midwifery in London in the second half of the 18th century. All of them giving lectures and demonstrations that involved dissecting human bodies. Most of them working not in hospitals or in other institutions. Don't forget there was no university in London in the 18th century. Instead, they were working in their own homes, in private lecture theatres, in private demonstration rooms attached to their homes. Because these courses were so popular, there was an enormous amount of competition for bodies. Procuring a good supply of bodies could be rather tricky. John Hunter did succeed in getting some bodies from the gallows at Tyburn, the bodies of executed criminals, but he wasn't entitled to them by right. He had to fight other surgeons to get hold of the bodies after they'd been hung. This is the um, penis of a rather unfortunate chap. Um, he was hanged in 1753 while John Hunter was still working with his uh, brother William, uh, someone called George Robertson, who was a sailor. And the report of the ordinary of Newgate, the clergyman charged with making a record of every criminal's last words, rather unflatteringly described Robertson as being addicted to lewd women. And unfortunately, he had attached, oh, had um, managed to contract an unfortunate infection as a result of this attachment to lewd women. He was, reported the ordinary, very unclean. And he was so clapped 
so afflicted with venereal disease that he could barely walk. And that's why when the constables came to arrest him, he couldn't make a quick getaway. And John Hunter decided this was something that he would be interested in studying. He later wrote a book about venereal disease. And lo and behold, we have George Robertson's organ preserved in the Hunterian Museum, the earliest of John Hunter's specimens that we know a name for. Of course, John Hunter got most of his bodies from other sources. The grave robbers, the resurrection men, body snatchers, who supplied most of the private courses in London with the bodies that they needed to teach anatomy by dissection. As you can imagine, it was a rather notorious trade, not strictly illegal, but certainly frowned upon. And John Hunter seems to have trod a rather fine line when it came to getting hold of bodies. This is a bit of one such body. Only the bottom half, it's a very tall chap, as you can see. This is Charles Byrne, the Irish giant, whose body was acquired by John Hunter in 1783 when he died. Now, Byrne had apparently left instructions with his friends that he was to be buried at sea. It seems that his friends weren't perhaps as good as they might have been, because after Charles Byrne died, his friends exhibited Byrne's body for profit for a week afterwards. They laid it out in a pub, and people would pay to get in and see Charles Byrne's body. And after that, I think, looking to make one final um, profit on the deal, Byrne's friends sold the body to John Hunter for £130. And John Hunter had it prepared as a skeleton to go into his museum. Now, this isn't the kind of practice we would condone today, but it was entirely typical of anatomy in the 18th century. And I think the idea that buying a body gave some kind of legitimacy to how it might be acquired, was something that was widely accepted. We know that John Hunter also... Sorry, this is the portrait of John Hunter, and you can just see in the top right-hand corner a pair of large feet. They are Charles Byrne's feet. So Hunter was so pleased by his acquisition, he had it painted into his portrait. Just up there, look. This is another skeleton acquired by John Hunter in the same year. And it's another skeleton for which he paid a substantial amount of money. This is the skeleton of a man called Mr. Jeffs. We don't know much more about him other than he had a very rare bone disease called fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva. It wasn't known in the 18th century. It is known now. Very rare. Hunter bought this skeleton. This is the front page of a sale catalogue, an auction sale catalogue of a surgeon called George Hawkins. And amongst George Hawkins' possessions, lot 106, a skeleton, ankylosed. Ankylosed means the joints fused together with bits of bone, for which John Hunter paid 85 guineas, a pretty substantial sum of money in the 18th century. And that is the skeleton of Mr. Jeffs. So, in the same way that he bought Charles Byrne's body from his friends, John Hunter bought this skeleton at auction. And bodies could be bought and sold at auction quite legally, not as fresh cadavers, but as preserved specimens. And John Hunter built up the biggest collection of preserved specimens anywhere in London. Now, not all of the bodies he dissected or the specimens he had came from corpses that had been delivered by grave robbers. Hunter also kept bits of bodies of patients that he operated on. This is a chap called um, John Burley, who was treated at St. George's Hospital, where John Hunter was a surgeon. And you can see he had this enormous tumour on the side of his face. 
This is the tumour. John Hunter removed it in an operation which took, he said, about 25 minutes. No anaesthesia in the 18th century. An incredible ordeal for a patient to go through. And also something that required a very steady hand and calm nerve from the surgeon. One of the reasons they regarded as dissection as such an important thing was that they thought dissection would teach you that kind of steady nerve that you would need when it came to treating patients. So poor Burley would have been held down by two or three assistants. John Hunter would have had to dissect out the tumour to make sure he wasn't cutting any of the nerves in the face. And it appears from this picture of Burley after the operation that he did a very good job, a very neat job. And I think almost certainly John Hunter's skill as an anatomist, as a dissector, enabled him to become a better surgeon. And, of course, he preserved the tumour in his museum to keep on demonstrating it to his students, not only as an example of a pathological structure, I think, but also as an example of his skill as an anatomist and a surgeon. There does seem to have been some quid pro quo, so treating patients in return for having bodies to dissect after they had died, appears to have been accepted. These are some of the bones of a woman called Mary Bradcock, who had a bone disease, a kind of weakening of the bones. She lived in Suffolk, and she was being treated by a surgeon called William Godwin, who was a student of John Hunter's. And Godwin reported the case. He wrote a letter to John Hunter in London describing her case said she was so poorly she could barely walk. She couldn't work. She had no means of income. John Hunter published the letter in a medical journal, and they raised a subscription to help her. So for the last few years of her life, money would come from this community of doctors in London to support her. Sounds very noble. I think it was quite a generous act. But of course, there was something expected in return, which was when she died, they would have access to her body to dissect. And after she died, William Godwin carried out the post-mortem and sent some of her bones back to John Hunter to be preserved in London. I don't know whether someone like Mary Bradcock would have been concerned by that or not. We assume sometimes that people were reluctant to be dissected But maybe that's not always the case. And there are some examples in John Hunter's museum that suggest that people may have been more accepting of dissection than perhaps we might imagine. For example, there are plenty of specimens in John Hunter's collection which come from well-known public figures. The thyroid gland of Admiral John Campbell, upon whom John Hunter performed a post-mortem. The diseased arteries of General Robert Armiger. You can see John Hunter was working his way through the armed forces, dissecting as he went. He did work as an army surgeon for three years in the early 1760s, and he seems to have used his contacts after that to provide him with a source of private patients. These, of course, weren't people being treated in hospital. So these were rich individuals paying for John Hunter to come and treat them privately. They would have died in their own homes... And their dissections, their post-mortems, would have been carried out in their homes. Not in a dissecting room, not in a lecture theatre, not in John Hunter's house, but most probably on their kitchen tables. People didn't want to see their bodies removed from their houses after they died, so the surgeon would be called in, would be asked to do a post-mortem. Normally the reason for doing a post-mortem like this would be if the family thought perhaps there'd been some mistake in diagnosis. 
And, of course, the families will be paying not just a surgeon but a physician and an apothecary as well, paying for medicines, quite an expensive business in the 18th century. And if it turned out that your nearest and dearest hadn't died of what the physician had said, then this was quite a useful thing to know because you could then refuse to pay the bill. There was no way a physician could enforce his claim to a bill in the 18th century. So a post-mortem seems to have been a good way of giving a family some idea of whether they'd got a good service from all of the doctors they'd contracted beforehand. There's a particularly poignant story attached to General Robert Armager. He was quite an elderly man, served a long career as an army general, very distinguished. By the time he returned to London, he was apparently much afflicted by gout and palpitations in quite a poorly way. But not to be deterred, he decided to get married. He married a woman 20 years his junior and collapsed and died on his wedding night. What a way to go. And John Hunter has this little bit of diseased artery to prove what General Robert Armiger finally succumbed to. This is a bit of a former Prime Minister, George Grenville, So John Hunter was working his way through politicians as well, several politicians, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Prime Minister, several other ministers were dissected by John Hunter. Uh, This has been the subject of some recent research to try and establish exactly what condition it was that was affecting Grenville. We think it was a multiple myeloma, which had spread throughout his body. Um, And I think this is a nice example of John Hunter's use of specimens to demonstrate his expertise, because About 10 years after Grenville died, somebody else appeared to be afflicted by the same condition, and the newspapers reported that John Hunter had been called in because he had the remains of Grenville in his museum. He was considered to be best placed to make a diagnosis. And clergymen, too. Was there a religious opposition to dissection in the 18th century? Well, I think amongst the Catholic poor in London, the Irish poor, there probably was a religious opposition, the idea that the desecration of the body after death might be something to be feared. But, of course, there was no established Catholic church in England. And it appears that the Church of England, the Anglican Church, didn't have any such objection. Because amongst John Hunter's collection, we have the bladder of John Vivian, who was his local vicar. We have the rectum of the Bishop of Durham, who was treated by John Hunter... And we have the hip of Frederick Cornwallis, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. So John Hunter worked his way up through the ecclesiastical career structure, dissecting as he went. And it appears that there was no great reluctance on the part of these individuals to be dissected, because we know that in John Hunter's museum, the names of the patients were painted on the tops of the jars. Nowadays, in a medical museum, it's the practice to anonymise your specimens to hide away all the information about who they've come from. In John Hunter's museum, he had his names out there for everybody to see. And it wasn't a purely private collection either. John Hunter used to open his museum to the public so they could come and have a look around. Every Saturday in May, John Hunter would open his museum, three Saturdays for gentlemen, one Saturday for ladies. And he'd give them a tour around the museum, pointing out all of the interesting body parts. It was said he gave a three-hour lecture tour of his museum. So quite a feat of endurance, I think, for the visitors. And of course, he was pointing out all his famous patients as he went. Now, we've seen some criminals. We've seen some clergymen. The noble figures in John Hunter's museum do include 
a mixture of the, of the two. This is uh, one of John Hunter's private patients, the remains of one of John Hunter's private patients, Frederick Thomas, who was a colonel in the army. Now, Frederick Thomas had fought in the American War of Independence, distinguished himself in his conduct, but on one occasion he seems to have run into some trouble. He accused another colonel, a chap called Cosmo Gordon, of being a coward. And as a result of that, Cosmo Gordon was court-martialed and dismissed from the army, came back to London. Frederick Thomas served out his career in the army. When he came back to London in 1783, he had the misfortune of running into Cosmo Gordon. Cosmo Gordon laid down a challenge to a duel to try and regain his lost honour. And the two of them met. And I have here part of the court report describing what happened afterwards. Cosmo Gordon, later the parish of St. George, Hanover Square, in the county of Middlesex, otherwise called the Honourable Cosmo Gordon, later the same, was indicted for that he, not having the fear of God before his eyes, but being moved and seduced by the instigation of the devil on the fourth day of September in 23rd year of his present majesty's reign, with force and arms and in upon Frederick Thomas Esquire, in the peace of God and Lord our King, then and there, being feloniously, willfully, and of his malice aforethought, did make an assault, and that he a certain pistol, value five shillings, then and there charged with gunpowder and one leaden bullet, did discharge and shoot off, well knowing the same to be charged, and then and there by force of the gunpowder aforesaid, the said Frederick Thomas with the leaden bullet aforesaid, so discharged and shot off from the same pistol, as aforesaid, feloniously, willfully, and of his malice aforethought, did strike, penetrate, and wound the said Frederick Thomas. Now you can see why lawyers get paid by the hour. <laughs> but what they're basically saying is they had a duel and Cosmo Gordon shot Frederick Thomas. Shot him in the stomach, in the abdomen, and you can see in the middle of that piece of intestine the hole made by the bullet as it passed through. Frederick Thomas lasted about five days and eventually succumbed to death, almost certainly from the septicemia arising from this wound. Cosmo Gordon was hauled up at the Old Bailey, charged with murder, but managed to get off. I think he was pretty well connected. And although John Hunter appeared as an expert witness to say that the bullet wound was certainly the cause of Frederick Thomas's death, the jury looked kindly upon Cosmo Gordon and he was allowed to escape with a mild reprimand. Shortly after that, I think duelling was forbidden in the English army. Clearly, the loss of officers wasn't something they wanted to uh, continue. Another rather notorious specimen from John Hunter's collection. This is the bladder of Sir Thomas Stapleton, a member of Parliament. We expect our members of Parliament to be fine, upstanding people, as they all are today, of course. In the 18th century, things were rather different. Thomas Stapleton was known as a hellraiser. He was a member of the Hellfire Club, a notorious club of rakes who used to meet in London for gambling and whoring. And his eventually succumbed to a variety of infections. He was dissected by John Hunter. His diseased bladder was preserved. And alongside it was a little case history describing Sir Thomas Stapleton and saying he was much addicted to venery. What a way to be preserved in the museum, your lasting, your lasting legacy. There's nothing about Thomas Stapleton I can find anywhere about his contribution as a parliamentarian, lots about his contribution as a rake, and the one bit of him survives says only he was addicted to venery. 
but another example of John Hunter's private patients perhaps not being the clean living chaps that we might suppose. Now, John Hunter also had in his collection some bits and pieces of his nearest and dearest, friends and family. This is part of the brain of a chap called William Sharp. William Sharp was the father of an engraver called William Sharp, and it was William Sharp the junior who produced the rather fantastic engraving of the Reynolds portrait of John Hunter. William Sharp Sr. died in 1786, just at the same time the portrait had been painted and at the time that William Sharp was working on the engraving. So it must have been a very odd experience to go into work, to be engraving this portrait, and to be seeing the person who had just dissected your father. But William Sharp appears to have been a very close friend of John Hunter, and I think actually John Hunter conducted the post-mortem almost as a favour to William Sharp, for the same kinds of reasons I mentioned before, to try and establish what it was that had killed him, and whether the doctors who'd been treating him had actually contributed to his death, or had actually done anything to alleviate his condition. And this is a bit of John Hunter's father-in-law. Not sure if that gave him any particular pleasure as a dissection. This is the father of Anne Home Hunter, who John Hunter married in the 1770s, also an army officer. And I think it was through their joint service in the army that the two became acquainted and John Hunter met his wife. And this is the only bit of John Hunter's immediate family that we have preserved in the museum. We have a life mask of John Hunter made by Joshua Reynolds when he was painting the portrait. We don't actually have any bits of John Hunter himself. Rather sadly, it turns out that John Hunter did leave quite strict instructions about what was to happen to his body after he died. He wanted to be dissected, and he wanted his Achilles tendon to be preserved because he'd ruptured his Achilles tendon when he was a young man, and he wanted his heart to be preserved because he suffered from angina, and he was rather curious about the condition. And he left instructions with his brother-in-law, Everard Hume, that these were the bits to be kept. Everard Hume, sadly, wasn't a terribly good anatomist, rather lazy. Later, turned out, he'd made a career on the back of plagiarising John Hunter's unpublished notes. And the dissection appears to have been another example of a rather lazy attitude to life. He didn't keep the bits that John Hunter wanted. So now we have the Hunterian Museum with all of these bits and pieces preserved, but without a bit of John Hunter. Now, alongside the bits of bodies we have, there are also some interesting paintings in the Hunterian Museum. And this is one. This is a woman of Labrador. That's how it's recorded in the catalogue. And there's always been a bit of mystery about who exactly this is. And it turns out she's one of a party of five Eskimos, or Inuit, who came to London in 1773 with a trader called George Cartwright, four adults and one young baby you can just see on the far right. They actually came for dinner at John Hunter's house, had a tour around, went into the museum, rather alarmed to see all the bits of bodies preserved in the museum. They all uh, returned home. Thankfully, they weren't dissected by John Hunter. This is another visitor to London who escaped dissection. This is a a Chinese Mandarin. Now, it's sometimes hard to know who these people are. And for a long time, this was identified as a man called Quang At Tong, who was known to have been a Chinese visitor to London, worked as a servant uh, to a noble family in London in the 1780s. And this is a portrait of Quang At Tong, Now, it didn't seem to match the portrait we have in the museum. 
because we know that this portrait was painted about 15 years after the painting. And at the time the painting was done, Quang At Tong would have been about four, 12 or 14 years old. So the painting shows a much older man. Can't be him. Who is it? How many Chinese visitors were there to London in the late 18th century? It turns out there is a clue in Johann Zoffany's group portrait of the Royal Academicians, the artists, all gathering for a life-drawing class. And all of the leading members of the Royal Academy are shown there, plus some other visitors who were popular faces at the Academy. And tucked away, peering over somebody's shoulder, is our Chinese Mandarin. And in fact, it turns out he's a Chinese modeler called Tan Che Kua, who came to London in the uh, early 1770s. He was described by the antiquary Richard Goff as a middle-sized man, about or above 40, his upper lip covered with thin hair, almost uh, very strong and black, on his head, no hair apart from the long lock braided into a tail almost a yard long. He wears the dress of his own country, and he's shown here in traditional Chinese dress. Now, Tan Che Kua was fated at the Royal Academy. He became a popular figure. He made quite a nice living selling little clay models of people, one of which survives in the collection of the College of Physicians. But I don't think he was terribly happy in London. I think he quite longed to return home. In March 1771, he attempted to return to China on the East Indiaman, the Grenville. However, I think the crew were rather suspicious of him. Uh, They later reported he'd fallen overboard I'm not sure whether he fell overboard or was pushed. Luckily, he managed to make it to shore and return to London. I think after that, he was rather sceptical of travelling back on an East Indiaman. Eventually, he did find a way back to China. He ended up back in Canton, where he died in the 1790s. Clearly, he managed to find a, a rather more accommodating crew for his return journey. Now, these paintings, I think, are interesting because one of the reasons we know so little about them is because after they came to the college, when John Hunter's collection was purchased by the government and given to the Company of Surgeons in 1799, their identities were lost. Up until that point, John Hunter, who gave his own tours of the museum, would have known exactly who they were. John Hunter would have known who all his patients were, would have known their case histories, would have been able to tell their stories. After they came to the Royal College of Surgeons, a lot of these histories were quite literally written out. The names of patients were crossed out of the catalogue. So rather than being the Archbishop of Canterbury, he became a noble clergyman, and then eventually a gentleman, and then eventually a man. And over the course of the 19th century, all of the specimens were gradually anonymised in keeping with changing medical patterns of practice, still the, day-to-day, still the practice today of having anonymous specimens in museums. Although we keep records, we keep them separate from the specimens. John Hunter didn't do that. But all of these stories got stripped away from his specimens after he died. And the paintings are the same. They turn from being the paintings of Cowbick, a woman of Labrador, to being an anonymous Eskimo. Tan Che Choir becomes an anonymous Chinese Mandarin. These paintings are considered interesting only because they show different racial types, not because they show individuals. 
And so when we look at the rest of the collection, the things that have been added since 1800, it becomes much harder to recover the stories behind some of the things we have. And I'll just show you a few things from the college collection, so things that were acquired after John Hunter died. Now, we do have some interesting remains of notable figures. Can anyone recognize this face? No? Sir Isaac Newton, his death mask. It was part of the collection of a surgeon called John Heaviside, and it was purchased by the college in the 1820s. The college was hoovering up collections from other private anatomy teachers and adding them into its museum. This is another thing. I don't know when this was acquired, but it's a lovely example of a body part that was kept by a patient. It's a little uh, pewter box, and engraved on the lid of the box is a few words, extracted November the 4th, 1725. And when you open the box inside is a bladder stone about the same size as an egg. This is somebody who's had a, a lithotomy, an operation to remove a bladder stone, and has then kept the bladder stone as a souvenir of their operation. Now, I always thought this was an, a, kind of an apocryphal story. There's a famous story about Samuel Pepys keeping his bladder stone in a box. And I never thought I'd actually come across one. We discovered this when we were recataloguing the collection about four or five years ago. And I was surprised to find one. And then it turns out we have another one as well, which is on display in the museum. A lovely little silver box. And it's actually engraved. Sadly, the bladder stone is gone, but the box has an engraving on it. And the box says that it was removed from a young boy. And it's got his name, and it says, thanks be to God for his deliverance. The operation was carried out when he was seven years old in the 1680s. You imagine going through an operation like that as a seven-year-old child, and he kept the bladder stone in a box for the rest of his life, I think in the hope that it would ward off anything similar in future. And I think when we look back at surgery, particularly before 1800, surgery in the 18th century, surgery in the 17th century, patients must have been extraordinarily grateful, relieved just to have survived the operation. And we have some examples in the museum of gifts given by patients to their surgeons, a pocket watch, for example, given by a patient to his surgeon as a thank you for surviving an operation. It's amazing what we take for granted today. Now, this is a bit of a clergyman, at least a, a partial clergyman. Uh, this is the spine, part of the neck of William Buckland, who was a geologist, and like many amateur natural historians in the uh, early 19th century, Buckland actually made his living as a clergyman. He became dean of Westminster Abbey in 1845, best known, however, for his researches on fossils and on geology. Um, this is a picture of William Buckland. And apparently, sometime before his death, he'd suffered a fall from a horse, and as a result of that, had suffered a, a neck injury. And um, his neck injury apparently left him badly debilitated after that. His son, who was the most fantastic chap, a man called Frank Buckland, trained as a surgeon, and Frank Buckland actually carried out the post-mortem on his father. One of the many things that Frank Buckland did that seems rather odd by today's standards. Um, this is Frank Buckland giving medicine to uh, what looks like a porpoise. And that's Frank Buckland dressed up for dinner, I think. 
he was part of a dining club that used to meet at London Zoo. And uh, every time some rare animal in London Zoo died, they'd all pitch up and they'd roast it and have it for their supper. Their aim was to see if they could eat as many different things as possible over the course of their careers. Frank Buckland's also famous because it was Frank Buckland who retrieved John Hunter's remains from the church in St. Martin's in the Fields in the 1850s. The church was being refurbished. They were emptying the crypt. And by that stage, the crypt was jam-packed with coffins and bodies. An absolutely filthy place. Nobody wanted to go in there. At one stage, they were thinking just of pulling down the whole thing and leaving the, the coffins where they were. Frank Buckland volunteered to go in and remove all of the coffins one by one so he could find John Hunter's skeleton. And he said it was the last coffin he came across. He worked down there for several months, moving out these coffins, hunting for John Hunter's remains. Eventually, they found it, and John Hunter was reinterred in Westminster Abbey. I'm very fond of Frank Buckland. I used to work at the Science Museum, and my first contact, my first knowledge of him came when somebody rang the Science Museum and said, I would like to come and see the Fish Museum. And I thought, that's odd. Maybe they mean the Natural History Museum. And they said, no, I want to come and see what remains of the Fish Museum, Frank Buckland's Fish Museum. It turned out that alongside the Natural History Museum and the Science Museum in South Kensington, Frank Buckland set up his own museum, the Museum of Economic Fisheries, which was mainly a museum of preserved fish, with little labels explaining why they were valuable to the economy. And to demonstrate this, Frank Buckland had a series of tanks in the basement of the museum where he would raise salmon. And you could go along, you have a tour of the museum, and at the end of it you could buy a fresh salmon to take away with you. I think it's a lovely chap. Dissecting his father was only one of the many eccentric things that Frank Buckland did. Now, some of the more notorious remains in the museum. This is the death mask of Richard Parker, hanged for his part in the Nor Mutiny, the naval mutiny at Spithead. Um, Sorry, Nor, in um, 1797. He was trained as a naval officer. Wasn't a very good naval officer, it turns out. Um, he entered the Navy at the age of 12. Um, He went through a variety of ships. He appears to have been dismissed on average every four years from his career for gross misconduct. And then, of course, as England would enter another war and the demand for sailors grew, he'd find another job and get taken back on again. So this was his kind of pattern of life for most of his career. Eventually, he ended up serving in the Navy in the 1790s. He'd ran, ran up enormous debts, and I think he went, joined the Navy as a final move to try and escape his debtors. Um, he was serving on the, uh, the Sandwich in 1797 when the fleet mutinied. And conditions in the Navy were terribly poor at the time. There was, there was a lot of unrest. And Richard Parker was fingered as one of the leaders of the mutiny. And he was taken. He was executed. And after he was executed, his body was sent to be buried at the Navy burying ground at Sheerness. But his, uh, his lover retrieved his body, which seems like a nice thing to do, except she then took it to London and exhibited it for show. So perhaps not quite so nice after all. And it was exhibited in a pub in London for several weeks after he'd been exhumed. And apparently during that time, William Clift, who was the conservator, the first conservator of the Royal College of Surgeons Museum, went along <coughs> and took a death mask. But we, he didn't actually carry out a dissection of Parker's body. This is another notorious figure, John Turtell, the Elstree murderer. 
hanged in 1824. Now, Tertel was a, a, a rich young man. He was the son of the mayor of Norwich. Um, I think, had, unfortunately, his wealth didn't him no favours. He fell into gambling and bad ways. And by 1724, he was badly in debt to another gambler, uh, a chap called uh, James Ware. And so he invited Ware to a gambling party at a house near Hartford, in Radlett, in fact. Uh, And en route, he bludgeoned Ware to death and dumped his body in a pond. I think he thought he'd made a good getaway. Someone discovered the murder weapon, however, and they tracked it down. They found out who'd been responsible. Uh, Turtell and his two accomplices, Hunt and um, uh, the middle one is Probert, uh, were apprehended and put on trial, and Hunt turned King's evidence. So he gave evidence against the other two, and it became clear during the trial that Turtell was the, lead, the ringleader, and he was duly convicted and executed. There weren't that many executions in Hartford at the time, so they had to build a new gallows specially for him uh, to, to have him hanged, and after he was hanged, his body was sent to London to be dissected at the College of Surgeons. This was in the 1820s. The Murder Act was still in force, so up until the 1830s, it was still a practice that every murderer's body would be sent to the surgeons to be dissected. And this is the skull of John Turtell, which is on display in the Hunterian Museum, along with um, other bits of his body, which are other bits of his skeleton, which are preserved in the collection. And one of the reasons for preserving the skull was that He was an interesting case. Because he was a wealthy young man, well-educated, it was thought that there must be some innate criminality which had caused him to go wrong. And they were interested to know whether the shape of his skull might reveal this, this early 19th century science of phrenology, using the lumps and bumps on the outside of the skull as a way of deciding what the character of somebody might be, a horrible way to be judged on the shape of your head. Turtell was decided an interesting case. You can see these drawings of him after he was hanged because you can see the marks of the rope on his neck. And this kind of thing seems to have been quite common, the idea that remains might be kept so that they could be studied to try and tell something about the character of the individual. Phrenology was one such practice, This is the cast of the interior of the skull of Jonathan Jonathan Swift, the author of Gulliver's Travels. Also a clergyman of sorts, he was dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral. And when his body was exhumed, someone took a cast of the interior of the skull to see if they could deduce from that the shape of his brain, to see if there was anything special about his brain. Clearly he was a brilliant man, a man of letters. Was there something about the shape of his brain that would mark him out? could you map these qualities of the individual onto the structure of their body? And this became a big, a big topic of investigation in the middle of the 19th century. Now, one of the problems was that getting hold of the bodies of eminent men was rather tricky. There were lots of criminal bodies being dissected, but getting hold of the bodies of geniuses was rather more difficult. Someone like John Tertell was interesting because here was a well-educated man who'd been hanged, but most geniuses, for whatever reasons, perhaps because they are so clever, don't end up on the gallows. So there was a little campaign going by the 1870s to try and track down some more noble remains. I'm not quite sure how they went about this. We kind of sent out a circular saying, if you were thinking of giving something, why don't you think of giving your remains to the Royal College of Surgeons? 
But whatever happened, Charles Babbage, the inventor of the first computer, great mathematician, appears to have become aware of this. And he made arrangements that after he died, his brain should be preserved. This is a letter written by his son, Henry Babbage, describing, replying to a letter from Sir James Paget, who was the uh, pathology curator here at the Hunterian Museum in the 19th century, in the 1870s. And it says, Many thanks for your kind note of this day. I'm not quite sure how you write a kind note to say, please may I have your father's brain, but clearly that's what Paget had done. I have no objection. On the contrary, I quite assent to the idea of preserving the brain. In these things, I have but one standard to guide me, viz. my thoughts of what could be the judgment of my father. And on this point, I have no doubt. Please, therefore, do what you consider best with the brain. It will be of comparatively little value if not connected with his name. And this you can use as freely as necessary. So here we have a rare example of a body part that was given from a known individual where the name was important, because clearly, how could you make a judgment about the quality of this brain as an organ unless you knew it had come from a famous mathematician? In the same way, the cast of Jonathan Swift's skull was only valuable because it was Swift's skull and not a generic one. However, I think tracking down more brains seems to have been tricky. This is Babbage's brain preserved in the Hunterian Museum. It's actually separated into two halves. We have one half here. We've loaned the other half to the Science Museum so they can display it next to his computer. This is the brain of Frank Herbert Matthews. Now, I've tried to work out what was special about Frank Herbert Matthews, and as far as I can see, what was special about him is that he thought he was a genius himself. Nobody else seems to have shared that view, but Frank Herbert Matthews kindly volunteered his brain to the Hunterian Museum in 1909, and it was duly pickled up and preserved as a specimen. Along with this one, the brain of Professor Francis Geoffrey Bell, who was a comparative anatomist at King's College London. Now, this is unusual because Bell was also a curator. He looked after his own collection at King's College London, and it's a rare example, I think, of a curator actually giving their remains to go into a collection. I wish more curators did that. I'd certainly have no objection to my bits ending up in the Hunterian Museum. I'm not sure how they'd slot into the series. Um, But Bell, I think, is the only curator whose remains I've tracked down in the Hunterian Museum. One other one I've found, not in our museum, in the Natural History Museum in Oxford, they had the tonsils of a former curator who had a tonsillectomy and donated his tonsils to the museum. But it's all too rare to find the remains of curators in a museum. This is as close as we come. This is Arthur Keith, who was the conservator here in the early part of the 20th century. We have a life mask of Keith and a death mask of him. And that's the closest we come to any mortal remains of one of our own curators in the Hunterian Museum. So that's it, a whistle-stop tour of some of the bodies in the museum, a few criminals, a few clergymen, the odd curator, a few other noble figures, some better behaved than others. I hope it's given you an insight into what we have. I hope it's whet your appetite for seeing the Hunterian Museum. Please do take the chance to go and have a look around the museum after the visit. Most of the things I've shown you are on there, tucked away somewhere or other. There are plenty more body parts with interesting stories behind them. All it takes is a little bit of hunting to find them out. Thank you.
Now, before you finish, if I could just ask you, we do like to have uh, some feedback from our visitors. We have some evaluation forms. If you'd like to take an evaluation form on your way out, just fill it in and let us know what you thought of the talk, if you liked or didn't like it. Too many body parts, enough body parts. Um, they're all collated and by one of my assistants, so I'm not, I shall not be personally offended, but I'm always interested to know what people think. If anyone has any questions, I should be happy to take them individually afterwards. Please enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.